Hello and welcome to Produce Talks, the CPMA podcast. I am your host and CPMA Education Manager, Jason Gorley. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know about an exciting development here at CPMA. In December, CPMA released an online certificate program called Produce Basics. These modules have been developed through industry consultations and industry working group and the CPMA Education Committee. You can learn more by visiting elearning.cpma.ca. This month on Produce Talks, we connect with Trent Smith, who is a project manager for the Veggie facility on the International Space Station. If you're not familiar with it, Project Veggie is a program currently being undertaken by NASA to learn how to grow and eat fresh fruits and vegetables in space. They've started with romaine lettuce, and as Trent explains, they are looking at experiments with other types of plants as well. Keep in mind when you're listening that Project Veggie has implications not only for long-term space travel, but for production here on Earth. Joining me today on the line, I have Trent Smith, who is a self-proclaimed NASA nerd, but he's also the project manager for Veggie. He's joining me today from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Trent, how are you doing? And thanks for joining us. I'm doing well, and we have a beautiful Florida sunshine down here, and it's a breeze off the Atlantic Ocean. And I definitely am a NASA nerd. Yeah, I'm the Veggie Project Manager, and it's been really exciting to get Veggie flown to space station, installed, and two crops of lettuce. The space program has been around for a long time. So is this the first time that plants have been grown in space? No, no. It's, uh, plants have been grown in space for quite a while. The Russians have a long history of growing plants. We've been performing plant science for, for a while. However, this is the uh, first time that we've grown plants in a way that the astronauts can see them easily. This veggie system is a low-power, simple system. It's about 70 watts, and that runs the software, that runs the fans, the lights. And the water is a uh, passive system, so there's no pumps, there's no uh, sensors or feedback system. So it's a very, very simple low-power, collapsible system. And the idea was you just use your cabin air as your atmosphere for the plants. You know, the difficulties in growing plants in space is really because the root system needs air and water at the same time. One of my favorite examples to, uh, I I talked to uh, many, many students, and uh, Commander Hadfield, did you see the video when he uh, rang out the uh, washcloth in space? <laughs> I think almost every Canadian saw that video, yes. Perfect. Well, so so imagine, I don't know if you noticed that the water moved up to his hand. Yeah. So if water were to preferentially wet out a root, then the plant would go into a, uh, a flood response, right? I mean, the plant's like, oh, my God, it's a flood. And so controlling the water in space such that you maintain the balance between air and water is incredibly difficult. And I can't give enough credit to the science team that came up with the idea of using arcelite, which traps the air and holds the water at the same time. And what that does is that allows the root system to use the whole volume of the pillow. On the flip side, if you've seen astronauts ever lasso water in space, the water and air is just a sphere. So if you were to put water into a pillow, you know, you could see maybe you would have this kind of wedge sphere in a corner and the root system would never get to it. And then the, the plant would be in a drought response and be like, oh my God, it's a drought. So getting that balance right is incredibly difficult. And then providing water to a growing plant, which starts out using little water, and then at some point hits exponential growth and really starts uh, transpiring the water is incredibly uh, challenging, you know, because you really need a pumps and sensor. So doing that passively, I think, is uh, one of the most fun challenges that we have with the veggie team. We send up the seeds dry. When we prepare the plant pillows, we actually glue the seeds into the plant pillow, into the wick. We actually do uh, glue two seeds per pillow. The type of glue we use is guar, which is a food-safe, non-toxic, very, very friendly system. Actually, if you go look at your, uh, if you have ice cream in your freezer, you probably 
We'll note that one of the thickening agents is guar. So for our first crop, we actually had a little problem with the uh, passive wicking system, which provides water. didn't seem like it provided enough water for the growing plants, and we actually uh, lost two plants. We had the astronauts directly inject the water into the plant pillows, which worked great. Saved one plant and kept the other two growing. For the lettuce, we actually have uh, six plant pillows, and of the six pillows we sent up, we batted 500. So you, you've kind of answered my questions about basics like soil and water. But what about light? Light must be different because it doesn't have an atmosphere to go through, right? Uh, well, on space station, we do have a we do have an atmosphere. We have uh, air and uh, you know and humidity and uh, carbon dioxide. So you know we have all the things that plants need and people need to to survive. Uh, the difference is you can't use like a window because the uh, space station goes around the Earth every ninety minutes. You'd have forty five minutes a day, and so think about that multiple times a day. You'd have a very confused plant or at least a, a plant which probably wouldn't be very productive. In lieu of using sunlight to grow the plants, we use a very efficient light-emitting diodes, or LEDs. We use red and blue because that's really what the plants need. The red drives the photochemical process, or the photosynthesis process, rather, and then the blue is for the chemical processes the plant uh, uses. Uh, we actually have some green LEDs in there, which the plants don't need, and that's really for the astronauts. So they can view the plants, take photos of the plants, and the plants look like plants. The astronaut schedule is so very busy. They exercise two hours a day. There's a number of experiments that they do through the day. They have this constant sunrise and sunset every 90 minutes. So for them, they kind of lose the passage of time. So caring for a plant over time kind of calibrates their passage of time and, and gives them a little piece of earth to take care of, too. I think there's maybe the sights and smells of a, of a growing plant in this aluminum and plastic environment can be very helpful for morale and behavioral health aspects of the crew members. It's interesting because we've just finished up a podcast with a project called Nemo's Garden. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's off the coast of Italy, and they basically have an underwater greenhouse going. Oh, cool. No, I haven't heard of it. Definitely going to look it up. It's really cool. And one of the things that, that they noticed is that germination time under the water under greater pressure was reduced so i'm wondering did you notice the germination time or have you compared germination times in orbit with germination times on on the earth for us the, the astronauts are about at one atmosphere so the the uh, pressure should be about the same and the carbon dioxide concentration on space stations is higher than it is here on earth i think on, on earth it's about 350 to 400 parts per million but on space station it ranges between two to even up to five thousand parts per million so when we run life science experiments on space station, we actually have chambers down here which exactly match the uh, temperature, humidity, and carbon dioxide concentration. Uh, because when we run a flight experiment, we want the only variable to be G. So you've removed the G vector. Well, we, we want to run, run our ground control, so all the other parameters are the same except for G. So we wouldn't see any germination effects, and, and we haven't. For the lettuce, we actually have uh, six plant pillows, and of the six pillows we sent up, we batted 500. That's three plants for our first crop. Steve Swanson harvested those. It, we it, were not allowed to eat them by our flight, do flight docks. They, they weren't approved for uh, consumption. He harvested the plants, uh, wrapped them up in aluminum foil, kind of taco style, and uh, inserted them into our Melfi freezer. Melfi is basically a minus 80 degree freezer. They came home on the next SpaceX uh, Dragon capsule back to Earth. We got those samples. We an analyzed them for uh, microbial populations, basically food safety. Uh, we performed mineral content. We measured the anthocyanin concentration as well as antioxidant capacity. I mean, the red romaine lettuce has a pretty good amount of anthocyanin, which is an antioxidant. For uh, astronauts in space, the uh, thinking is antioxidants will be helpful dealing with radiation. So when you took it back for testing, 
Was there anything different about the lettuce that was grown in orbit? No, it was it was uh, pretty similar as far as food safety. It was about as clean, if not cleaner, than what you buy in the grocery store. So we uh, collected all the data and presented it to uh, the flight docks at Johnson Space Center. We got approval from the flight docks. We had to take it to a couple more boards and to a safety panel, and we got it all approved. And it was really, really exciting uh, when we had the approval, and it's a the first time that the astronauts have officially been approved to eat what they grew in space, or really uh, to eat the fruits of their labor, and the process by which we had to forge the process, too, in, in, in doing that. And Once we had the approval and they were uh, growing the lettuce, they knew they were going to eat it, and they took really good care of the lettuce. You know, it was just really phenomenal to watch uh, Chell and Scott Kelly care for the plants. It, it must have been kind of exciting for them to know that they were going to get to eat something that wasn't freeze-dried, right? Yeah, I mean, the food that goes up is it's good food, but many astronauts will tell you you don't go to space for the food. So over time, uh, having something fresh and crunchy, they, they love it, especially when they get, you know, they send up fresh uh, fruit when they, um, they get fresh deliveries from the Dragon or from the Cygnus or uh, from the Russian vehicles. Uh, they're juggling oranges and things like that, and, and they eat it rather quickly. And so, you know, when they're able to actually grow and eat it, it's, it's even that much more exciting, I think, for them. Who was more excited, the astronauts or the ground crew, when they finally got to eat this salad? I, I think it was a mix, uh, you know, because we do send notes to the crew members, and, and we kind of have a friendly competition between our ground control and their flight plants. And, by the way, they, they won. They had, they had really nice-looking plants on, on Space Station. I have a question now that's kind of a two-part question, and it's just kind of formed as we've been talking, because one of the things I mentioned to you before we started recording was I wanted to know about how some of this research might be affecting production of crops back here on Earth. But then I started thinking, well, how much is what's happening on Earth, how much could that be impacting your project as well? Oh, it was, so yeah, the, the information flows both ways, right? I mean, it absolutely does. There's, uh, there's a, actually a terrific partnership uh, with Dr. Joy Amasa, Dr. Ray Wheeler, Dr. Howard Levine, I think Joy is going to a um, controlled environment conference here in the next year. And so she goes out and talks about what we're doing in space and learns from the controlled environment community what they're learning in lighting and, you know, growing the plants in these controlled environments. And so that really feeds back to, say, urban farms or warehouse farming or underground farming. You know, there's a lot of countries and a lot of areas that, that don't have the benefit that we do of these very nice arable lands or... Uh, you know, in the urban setting, maybe it costs you money on the uh, electricity bill, but your productivity is increased. So, so there might be some trades that that down the road, this warehouse farming or urban farming might might tip the balance where that that's a pref, uh, preferred way to go. And for us, because we're volume constrained, we're energy constrained, we're basically commodity constrained, right? Because every everything we send up has a cost. And so we are very much about uh, getting the the most out of a plant that we can with the least amount of resources. And so what we learned, we certainly feed back to the, uh, to the scientific community and the uh, controlled environment community. And what, what they also learn, they feed us. So it's definitely a symbiotic relationship. And now it's time for a quick break to hear from CPMA membership chair, Les Mallard. But stay tuned, because on the other side of this, we're going to talk a little bit about Matt Damon. Les, I'm wondering if you can let me know some of the benefits that Chiquita has with being a member of CPMA. Thanks, Jason, for this opportunity. The CPMA value equation spans many areas of interest for Chiquita. However, one of the areas of interest I want to key in on is the CPMA annual convention. The convention offers touchpoint opportunities with all the major players in the Canadian produce industry in various settings, whether business or social. 
no other produce function in Canada offers the scope the CPM Annual Convention offers. Having this is a tremendous value for our organization. Thanks, Les. And now back to the conversation. We are CPMA, so I'm, I'm Canadian. So when Chris Hatfield came back to Earth after that last stint up there, I think a lot of people watched his return. And one of the things it was really evident when, when he came back was the toll that it takes on, on your body being up there that long. So was there a toll noticeable in the plants from being up there as well? So from what we can tell, the plants look remarkably similar to our ground controls. And the crunch factor and the texture was very similar to what the crew remembered romaine lettuce from tasting. So it's hard to know without having real mechanical data on, on the plants. But from what we can tell, uh, for lettuce anyway, there's, there's minimal impacts of growing lettuce in microgravity. Now, now that's not to say that other plants might have, they might change the texture. You know, you go to space, uh, your body doesn't put so much energy into, into the bones because it doesn't need to. Right? Every time we take a step on Earth, we're building bone, and when we quit putting that compression on the bones, they, uh, it triggers them to uh, break down and not build so much. And plants are incredibly efficient that way as well, so if they don't need to have a very thick stalk, they won't put energy into it. So it's going to be re really curious. I'm very excited. Uh, we have some uh, plans to grow tomato and veggie in the 2017-2018 time frame. And, you know, uh, these are dwarf tomato varieties, so uh, we're, we're very curious to see how they're going to do. So how will that work in terms of pollination? That's a great, that's a great question, and we don't know, we don't yet know. Uh, our thinking is the astronauts will be the bees, right? They're going to uh, cross-pollinate the tomato plant, uh, probably using a bee stick. Uh, but right now we're running kind of a precursor test uh, Chell uh, Lindgren is uh, going to get going the uh, third crop of uh, Veg01, which is actually zinnia. And zinnia is a, uh, is a flower. And so what we're going to do with the zinnia is the zinnia is about a 60-day growth, and, and then we're going to let it flower. So we're going to, A, we're going to get data on a, a longer duration plant in veggie. Uh, the lettuce was uh, 30, about 30 days or so, and now the zinnia is 60 days. Tomato is going to be about 90 to 100 days. In addition to that, we're going to let it flower. So we're going to see, you know, is pollen an issue? Uh, how how does a flower, you know, how do how does a plant like zinnia do flowering in, in, in veggie? And so the the flowering plant's going to be a uh, advanced knowledge and inform us on what to do for a fruiting plant like tomato. Yeah, I guess you're going to hope that nobody up there has an allergy at the time. Well, and so you know, it's funny because someone says, well, you know. Yeah, zinnia doesn't taste good, and then uh, I think one of the uh, flight directors found recipes for zinnia. So we'll see if the crew members decide to taste the zinnia or not. So you've mentioned tomatoes. Yep. So, so obviously you're you're looking at a longer scope, and I think I, I mean the vision for this is for for longer term space travel, correct? Oh yes. Yeah. Let me also back up a little bit. So Vejo One flew on SpaceX Three. Uh, we have a Vejo Three experiment uh, getting ready to fly on SpaceX Eight. And what that is, is 12 pillows of Chinese cabbage. It's actually a Tokyo Bacana, which is a very tasty cabbage. And then, and then six pillows uh, containing the red romaine outrageous seeds. So we're going to send up 18 pillows, just like we did for Vegio 1, except Vegio 1 was 12 pillows of uh, red romaine lettuce and six pillows of zinnias. So we're going to send up another crop ready for them to grow when they have time. And then, and then downstream, uh, we'll do tomatoes. So, the one common thing you'll note is that these are all kind of pick-and-eat type of uh, plants, right? You can 
you can cut a few leaves of the lettuce and then let it keep growing and and over time you can build a salad you know cut and come again kind of thing tomato you can take a few tomatoes off at a time and and come back again so none of these uh, crops that we're talking about require uh, cooking now downstream uh, to get a microwave on space station we can grow maybe potato or sweet potato I'm kind of excited about sweet potato I think sweet potato uh, would be great in space because it has a, a nice uh, taste and they can uh, kind of flavor it up how they like. So there's still probably a long way from being anywhere close to some sort of self-sufficiency once they're up there, right? Yeah, so right now we are learning how to grow the plants in microgravity, not uh, not kind of uh, farm them in a sustainable manner. You know, but that is that would be the long-term goal, you know, how do you... How would you compost in space? How do you make sure that your uh, dust and dirt stay where you need it so you don't contaminate your electronics? You know, so on the way to Mars, uh, you're growing plants on the way to Mars and composting on the way or, or uh, recycling the uh, inedible uh, plant mass in a way that, that makes sense. There's a number of teams working on that, and so what we're focused on kind of the food production. What, what do the plants need to grow? And that way, when we can understand how, what the plants need to grow, then you can figure out you know, would you use a biochar? Would you compost? Would you use a combination of that? And uh, would you use media like we do now? We use an arcelite, which is that clay media I mentioned. Or would you use hydroponics? Or would you use aeroponics? And so those are all trades that, that, that get made downstream. But first, we need to understand, can you grow these plants in microgravity? And what, what do you need to grow them? Before I let you go, I, I have one more question to ask. And it's kind of slipping into pop culture. So there's a movie that's come out recently called The Martian, where Matt Damon gets stranded somewhere. And he gets stranded on Mars. And to survive, he starts growing potatoes using Martian soil and uh, some of his own waste. So what I'm wondering about is, is the science behind that sound? Like, is this realistic or is this way out there? So I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm a chemist by training, but by education. Uh, I've learned a lot from our plant biologists. Assuming that the regolith has been, uh, you know, doesn't have any perchlorates, right? It's just this inert media which holds water, uh, you know, and assuming all the macro and micronutrients are there in, in his ways to support the, plant, the potato, potato plant, right? So you got to kind of have this, this forward-leaning thought. So, yeah, it could, it could be happen, but there's always things that can go wrong. But there's, I think for the most part, that that's doable. I think the least, the least likely thing is to have a... Uh, a windstorm tear apart structures on Mars because it's got very, very little atmosphere. Well, thanks for being here, Trent. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I appreciate it, and I look forward to talking to you again. And that's all that we have for you this month on Produce Talks. I'd like to thank Mr. Trent Smith and everyone at NASA who took the time and energy to connect with us and make this podcast happen. The music that you're hearing on today's podcast is called Clap and Yell, and it's from bandsound.com. I'd also like to thank you for listening. And you know, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us by email, by emailing podcast at cpma.ca. You can also subscribe to the podcast and leave reviews on several podcast catchers. For instance, if you are on an Android device, you can find us on Stitcher. Just search for Produce Talks and subscribe. If you have an idea for a podcast, we'd love to hear from you too. There is a web form available on cpma.ca on our podcast page. Just fill it out and then we'll take it from there. All right. So that's it. Until next time, make a healthy choice. Fill half your plate with fruits and veggies.